Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. Welcome, Michael. Hello, Terry. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Reflections, where we look back on episode 53 with Seth Sheldon on his work for Nobel Peace Prize winner ICANN and Disarmament, episode 54 with Damien Mander on the Akashinga, or Brave Ones, an all-female anti-poaching unit, and episode 55 with Leda Hong Fincher on Chinese feminists and their importance to Me Too and international women's rights. Let's start with episode 53. Seth Sheldon, you were there when we taped the recording live at NYU's College of Global Public Health. Right. I was able to actually meet Seth and uh, speak to him a little bit about what he, uh, what his thoughts were, and uh, I was impressed by him. He seems like a person that uh, is relatively shy, I-, I would say, or his nature is more of a quiet person and not of a public speaker, but I was impressed that uh, he challenges himself every day, which is something that I, I want to do and follow that example. So I guess you're referring to Seth's story on how he got involved with ICANN and the move on global disarmament, how he used his privilege, as he, as he said, but also combined with luck and his grit to actually find the right people to work with, to now work with ICANN on disarmament in New York City. Right. Well, I I was actually just referring to the fact that he is challenging himself in terms of public speaking. He said that in in, during the interview, actually, where he said, you know, in general, it's it's something that he likes to do. So that's the AI. So in addition to that, he decided to take this on in order to challenge himself on top of the fact that it's just public speaking and it's other things that that he's challenging himself on. So it's very impressive. He started off in a place where he just wanted to do something and he put his mind to it. Well, I want to delve into Seth's role at ICANN, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. So right now, Seth is the United Nations liaison for ICANN, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. And one of the things that struck me about the conversation around disarmament was Seth's use of the analogy between disarming nuclear weapons and disarming gun rights. Right. Especially that's become something relevant uh, in the news. Well, recently, and, and it's been going on for a very long time, where we keep on having mass shootings, mass shootings after mass shootings, and the argument of making sure that, addressing the issue of the weapons instead of like the other issues supposedly that are uh, contributing to it. Yeah, so Seth made the analogy that those who support gun rights advocate for the concept that a good guy with a gun is the best response to a bad guy with the gun, which is the argument that on a state level, nations use to justify building nuclear arms arsenals. So if bad actors such as North Korea were to arm themselves, then countries like the United States need to be able to arm ourselves as well in response to deter those bad actors. 
I mean, it doesn't even make sense on a smaller level when it comes to uh, regular gun rights. I mean, think about it. I think it's happened also recently in uh, some of the mass shootings where a person, a supposed good guy with a gun, uh, was firing uh, at the supposed bad guy with the gun. But then when law enforcement came in, there's now two people shooting and it just causes more confusion. And there's now the the possibility that these two people, even if it's a good guy with a gun, it may it may cause more casualties than if it if there were um, <clears throat> than if it was just one person shooting. So, um, I mean, you could ma- extend that analogy to a, 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 a bigger scale with uh, nuclear weapons too. I mean, the more people are armed, the more likely it is that those weapons are going to be used. Um, So I believe that that's the same argument. I'm glad you brought that up because this past week in Philadelphia, there was a man with a long criminal record and an AR-15 semi-automatic assault style weapon. And six officers were wounded and miraculously, Nobody died, and people escaped with non-life-threatening injuries after a seven-hour standoff. And so even though there were police there, clearly that was not sufficient because they were injured to actually neutralize this mass shooter. And so the news that came afterwards, there were a lot of memes around people in Florida, legislators wanting to arm teachers. And if police officers were injured, can you imagine, had teachers been armed who are not trained to neutralize a gunman like this person? Right. So the more people that have guns, the more likely it is that people are going to, especially even even a police officer, I can't imagine that they're going to be able to handle every situation. Obviously, in that situation in Philadelphia, police officers were trained to handle this kind of situation, and they were still hurt. So it's probably less likely that if guns were banned that uh, this would be as much of an issue, right? I mean, even in a place like Japan that bans guns altogether, there was, I believe, one gun death overall, which is ridiculously different when it comes to when you compare it to the United States. The other thing is how the fact that guns, although in, in mass shootings, guns, guns are a huge problem. I believe, uh, according to an article that we are going to link, a little more than half of gun deaths are, are a result of suicide. So neither, either way, it uh, doesn't talk as much to, to the global situation with um, nuclear weapons, other than the fact that uh, a lot of these weapons can be triggered um, accidentally. So, I mean, that would, I would say, the comparable statistic. It's, it's the potential of this happening. Well, the potential also leading to what we discussed around toxic masculinity and patriarchal culture using violence and the threat of violence and potential human annihilation as a response to intimidating other either individuals or nations into submission. Right. So, yeah, the analogy that Seth uh, brought up is a very good one. So right now... I know that Seth is working on getting the city council to pass resolution 976 and 
Right. Essentially, it's it's a shift in the culture that we're trying to push. Unfortunately, a lot of this masculinity is ingrained within our society and it affects us in so many aspects. So when it comes to this thought of uh, the good guy with a gun, it's just trying to push that train of thought. As you know, Seth, both episode 53 with Seth and episode 54 with Damien deal with this concept of ecofeminism, which sees environmentalism and the relationship between women and the earth as fundamental to how we analyze relationships between humans and the natural world, so that how we treat women and how we treat the planet are both resulting from male domination of society. And so I want to just highlight that there is this article and study by the United Nations on global homicides that deal with gender-related killings of women and girls. And basically, the home is the most dangerous place for women and girls all across the world. And so that is really the fundamental reason that we have this podcast. Um, It's really to highlight the gendering of violence and the gendering of all forms of violence and violent acts. And one of the manifestations of it is, of course, through armament, as Seth had stated in our interview with him. But another form of that is in our conversation with Damien around this concept of poaching and dominating the planet and dominating animals. So what are your thoughts about Damien's background as a special operations military sniper? and his, his use and advocacy of military equipment and tactics for the purpose of protecting animals from poaching. Damien explained how he was inspired to do what he's doing right now. So he, he felt, uh, I believe he told us the story about the rhinoceros and how he was, he was suffering and it was a cause of this violence. So it's interesting to make to have a person with that kind of background who didn't see a problem with it before and then change and which goes to show that maybe other people can also make this change in culture. Um, so you're saying that either it was the rhinoceros or the buffalo story where um, he had observed an animal being killed through poaching and what that impact had on him in shifting his view, not just towards animals, but also towards his experience in the military. Is that what you were referring to? Yes, that's what I was. So the animal was a symptom, not a cause. Right. Uh, It was, yes. And what I'm saying is that his story is inspirational, I believe, because many other people can see and relate to that. Do you really feel that many people can relate, though? Because so many people in the military, I don't see them changing their transforming their perspectives on war the way that Damien has. 
Maybe not, and maybe they will transform later. And we, I, don't, I really don't know the statistics, but there are many veterans right now that are suffering because of the causes of war. You have PTSD, and, and it's a huge problem They're, after they go through something so traumatic. I think that maybe not everybody's going to uh, catch themselves on ti- in time. Um, and people go to the military for many different reasons, you know? I, I believe a lot of times it's economic where they do this out of necessity to pay for college or to have a, just try to live. So it's difficult to say one way or the other, but I do think that if it's a small percentage of people that change, then that's, that has value. Yeah, and Damien also has now become an ardent supporter of veganism. Um, it's a way for him to live with his values aligned with his behavior. Because he said, how can you be someone who is an advocate for animals and um, anti-speciesism when you're engaging in consuming them? Right. That's true. Right. And, and we are, by contributing with our dollar, we are contributing to a lot of these um, injustices. Right. Um, it's just like, uh, let's say you're, you're eating hamburgers and, and then that causes... Uh, more of a demand for for meats and and if there's a market for these uh whatever whatever it is that they get from the hunting on uh, these animals then people are voting with their dollars that way and so by changing the culture you are reducing hopefully the demand for these things and one of the things that is impressive of his approach is uh the fact that he's using uh the yakashinga which is a, a very i would say feminist kind of approach to empower women Yeah, so these women are people who have been victims of sexual assault and rape or domestic violence or who are single moms and just suffering from extreme poverty. And he's purposely selecting them to be part of the female anti-poaching unit, uh, training them, giving them skills to be able to become economically independent, to reinvest their earnings back into their local communities, to become role models for both the girls and the boys, and to really, in many ways, as he said, shift the perception of how the communities view women. And this seems to be a model that is more effective than the standard uh, male units, right? That they are, uh, according to him, um, less prone to corruption and more likely to be motivated by family in order to uh, take action. So this, in many ways, is a solution to, to, to more than one problem. They, it, they also generate lower rates of violence in response to the anti-poaching efforts. So they're able to use de-escalation techniques and tactics more effectively without having to resort to violence to catch these poachers. Right. So it could be that women uh, may be better at diplomacy than men in this case. And it could be many reasons, right? Maybe in general, men would probably be threatened more by another male and they'd be more defensive. And maybe these women are, they, they seem to be less of a threat. There could be many reasons, I'm not sure. But what we do know is that it's working. So what are your thoughts about when Damien was confronted by my question around using tactics, milita- military tactics, to basically employ and implement a feminist solution? It's 
fascinating that he doesn't consider himself a feminist, despite the fact that he is empowering uh, women using the Akashinga. So he is just using what works. He's just using what he finds logical. So for him, even though he doesn't identify as an ecofeminist, like you, you mentioned, he is one in the eyes of what he does. It's, um, I appreciate the way that, see, I, I wanted to talk about, you know, in the opposite way, how in contrast, if a person is saying racist things and doing racist things, but don't consider themselves a racist, they're still a racist. In the opposite way, you have someone like him who, Damien, is doing things that empower women, and I would still say he's still a feminist, despite the fact that he doesn't identify as one. To be fair, after the taping of our interview, we had a deeper dive into the definition of ecofeminism, and Damien actually, at that point, recognized that he would be calling himself most likely a feminist ally. And he even downloaded the book Ecofeminism as a um, entree to better understanding what it is that the uh, work that he is, you know, how it can be labeled and how he can build alliances with other people who are definitely in the space and um, working to liberate both the planet from uh, human desecration, as well as um, minimize the, and eliminate the violence against women that is a global phenomenon. So hopefully his understanding will help him make those connections and hopefully ally himself with other people that would uh, be in line with his goals. Yeah, and, and also, you know, as, as we're reflecting upon these three episodes around gender and international feminism, it's really important to make not just connections around what's happening around the world, but to build the network of allies, build this tribe, either through our podcast of people who believe and are working towards the same goals, but also help them connect with one another. Which leads me to our last episode, episode 55, with Leda Hong Fincher. Uh, she's an Asian-American author and scholar and wrote two books on Chinese feminist. One of them is Leftover Women, and the other is Betraying Big Brother. And both of these books really highlight the state of women in China and how the Chinese government is using economic policy and social policy to incentivize marriage in young women, even as young as women in college, so that it can both continue the economic growth that they think women who are married and have children can bring, uh, as well as to engage women in their self-policing and, and self-surveillance in many ways um, so that they can not participate in the feminist movement that many of these feminists are already engaging in. Right. They have, so she mentioned, she mentioned how these women who are college-aged and um, are, are seem to be more desirable to have, for them to have children than, than others, and that's why there's this push. I don't know how effective that's going to be, but the media does have a strong influence on, on our behavior, so I hope that people just become more informed. I have to say, when I read these two books, what I was struck by 
more than anything was the level of consciousness of these feminists who were incarcerated and detained and the way they spoke about Chinese state apparatus and the tactics that the Chinese government was using, how clear they were in how they were being manipulated and controlled. They were detained uh, and incarcerated, and many of the tactics, which included isolation, obviously, because they were in jail, intimidation, which included not just intimidating them during the time they were incarcerated, but going to their families and loved ones and letting them know that if they continue to engage in feminist protest in, in um, efforts to lead other Chinese female activists in building a feminist consciousness, whether it's around street harassment or domestic violence or rape and sexual assault, that these kinds of activities would put their families and loved ones in harm's way. Um, And then the final one is regulating, making sure that their fear would lead them to self-regulation, to self-surveillance. Right. You mentioned, um, well, she mentioned that uh, one of the things that they did was take away their glasses, right? Making them dependent on others, right? Well, not even dependent, not being able to see, period. Because they weren't dependent, they were incarcerated, so. Right, right. Yeah, that's true. So just like an abuser would uh, disable or or control what a woman can and can't do in a relationship, the police uh, or law enforcement over here in in China was doing the same, which I believe is a good incentive for for feminism in general or domestic violence and what is domestic violence to be taught in schools because from a young age, people should know what are the signs. Like isolation, that's something that I learned well into my 20s, which I would have benefited from learning uh, before. And not just for me, but for other people who are going through this. I don't think everybody sees that as uh, isolation, for example. Well, just to be clear, so that you're referencing when Leda was talking about a colleague of hers who made the analogy that taking away the women's glasses, because all of them had suffered some sort of Um, restriction to their vision, you know, all of them had nearsightedness or farsightedness and were basically almost blind by not being able to see that that was a great analogy for the gaslighting of women in general all across the world, where you have these patriarchal systems, not just in China, but also in the U.S., trying to gaslight us every day with these abuser tactics. So, telling us that what are facts are not facts, telling us that scientific evidence of climate change doesn't exist, you know, telling us that mainstream media news are fake news. Right. So that analogy of the gaslighting of women was um, used as a way to show that this is a universal phenomenon. Right, that it's happening both over there and over here. She, in fact, uh, talked about a statistic people that got together that had misleading information and disseminated it throughout. And it's very similar to the fake uh, news that is disseminated over here in the United States. It happens in both ways. So you're saying you're talking about the propaganda that the Chinese government distributed with regard to how... If you don't have a house, then you don't 
get married or something like that. That men who didn't have, um, who weren't homeowners, were less likely to be married and less desirable to women. Right. And that that was not true. And in fact, women were interested in marrying men who did not own homes, but that statistic was falsely used to put pressure on both women and men to get married and to transfer assets and wealth from women to men so that when they did get married, men would be the owners and women would not. Right. Further beyond that, that's one of the policies that uh, keep women down because a lot of times families would make sure that they would encourage the male to have uh, the asset and uh, pass their wealth to the man. And it's something that continues, right? A policy that was established in the past like that will continue to affect uh, the economy into the future, even if... So, uh, like in comparison here in the United States, you could make the same argument of how wealth transfers in terms of homes. So back in during the time when um, the Jim Crow era, where black people were not allowed to own homes, and the, the fact that they were unable to build those assets in the past causes that divide over in the future, in, in the present, on the economic disparity between um, blacks and whites. And it's similar with women and men. So you're saying that housing policy that was set up during Jim, past Jim Crow that discriminated against African-Americans have had generational effect on the ability for African-Americans to build wealth. And... In the same way, um, in, in China, that this policy continues to affect well currently. Yeah, so basically, I think what we're trying to get at is that when you have policy that discriminates against one group of people, there's going to be a long-term impact on that group of people, whether it's women or African-Americans, to access economic equality, economic resources, to build economic wealth, and to really be able to make free decisions about how they want to live their lives. What do, you, what do you think about the applicability of the fight for feminism in China by Chinese feminists and the fight for liberation in our country in the United States? What are some of the similarities and differences between these two groups? And how, and how relevant do you think their struggle is to our struggle? So one affects the other. I know that the Me Too movement seemed to have started over here in the United States. One of the things that our culture over here is a little bit different when it comes to the culture over there in China. So, for example, she mentioned that there was a, a husband who was abusing his wife, a Chinese entrepreneur who was very famous, who had a wife who was American. She was abused by him and took pictures on social media showing the abuse, the results of him beating her. And this affected, I believe, the culture and impacted the Chinese public, uh, apparently, to when they see this out into the light. Americans seem to be more open about this, and women in China... Uh, may not be as open to uh, letting this out. And 
So I, I, th- that's one way where you can see the difference what do you, in culture. What do you mean by this affected the Chinese public? I believe that the people in China, since that's not something that's very common for a Chinese woman to do, right? To put it, put uh, the abuse out into the public. I believe that because she was American, she she was more likely to do this, and thus the people in China were able to see this. Some, see a person that they admire to be outed in this way. And I think it's because of the Me Too movement. A woman like her is less restricted by, cultural, by uh, Chinese cultural norms, and thus it exposed uh, this abuse to the general public in China. They created a forum for discussion around domestic violence, you're saying. Right. And if it were a Chinese woman, it would be less likely that she would want to speak publicly about it because of all the shame that's attached to it. Right. On the other hand, I feel like there's shame attached to domestic violence in the U.S. as well. People are not so likely to want to talk about it, at least among higher class people. Would you say, though, that it's the same as in China? Like the level? Yes. I mean, any subject like this is uncomfortable. But don't you think that is? And that's why I I brought up the Me Too movement, because I believe there's now this this movement where there is more exposure. People are exposing these heinous acts uh, more readily than they were in the past. So Yeah, I mean, I guess definitely the Me Too movement is international and has had an international impact, which is um, why these, which is something that the uh, coattails of which the Chinese feminists have ridden. They have hashtags that are homophones for Me Too so that they can get around censorship in China. Um, And they've definitely grown virally through using those hashtags, although now they've those accounts in Chinese social media have been either erased or suspended. Um, but I, I guess I just feel that part of the reason this podcast exists is because we don't have a cultural literacy around violence against women because we refuse to see this as something that is endemic to our culture and because we refuse to talk about it. And that's why when things happen in the news, people are so surprised and they still think it's not relevant to them. Right. I, 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 I do see that. But looking at the bright side, I, I believe that if you see something like us being exposed to the Feminist Five over here, because that's something that became relevant in the news over here in the United States. It, it, I believe it does expose the abuses of the, of the Chinese law enforcement and government against these women, and so it brings attention to it. So I, I do believe that it affects it in both ways. Yeah, and I also want to point out that before our conversation, Leda and I talked about coercive control and how the Chinese state apparatus and set of tactics that they use, I mentioned earlier, of isolation, intimidation, and regulation, those tactics are identical to coercive control in an interpersonal relationship. So what is odd to me is that people can easily recognize, hey, this state is behaving in a way that is authoritarian. And yet they can't recognize when these same tactics are applied to them in a personal personal relationship on a personal level. They can't recognize that, wait a minute, I'm being 
controlled and dominated, and my freedom is being restricted in the same way that, let's say, China is enacting tactics towards these feminists in the same way as that. And why is it that they can't make those connections? That to me is very puzzling. Well, part of it is the education that they they don't. It's not explicitly stated in their education, right? I, they 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 see this, yeah. And I, I I completely get that they don't they don't see it in a personal level. But I, I believe it's part of it is the education. I was told of a story recently where there was this young girl, 19 years old, who was confiding in her aunt that uh, her boyfriend was employing these abusive tactics like isolation and making and checking her social media to make sure she's not doing anything and asking for her passwords and demanding these things, right? Which she didn't see it. But when she told the aunt, the aunt was able to see it and then address it. Now she was 19 years old. At 19, I mean, I understand that she's young and she has a lot of things that, that are going on with her, but I don't think she was educated in the sense that she was able to recognize this right away. So after she was presented with an article and just like re- regular uh, basic um, control tactics that abusers use, did she only then re- recognize that that was, that, that was abuse? Did this young woman take action? Is she still with the young man? Unfortunately, she is still with the young man, but she's hiding it. So um, she's in the process of leaving, so, in so, other words. Yes, yeah, she's. So I would say she's in the process of leaving. You don't just so I, because she's in what I believe a dangerous situation. It's not. She can't just end all contact with him because he's stalking her, and then he's like calling her, and then he shows up at her place, and that's where she lives with her parents. So there's a lot of things that she's employing in order to address it, right? And as long as she has the support of the family, I do believe that that's something that will be corrected in the future. But as of now, I do believe she's still in danger. Getting back to what you were saying earlier about education, um, I like to be able to contextualize the kind of education that I think would be effective. And it's not necessarily about couching it in domestic violence and interpersonal relationships, because you were saying that would be something that you would suggest. I would say it's important to be able to bring to light all the different forms of power. So whether it's power and privilege based on race or gender or ability, physical ability, um, gender expression, etc., all of these different ways in which there's hierarchy that is socially constructed, if we can expose that and the kinds of privilege that people have access to because of what their color of the skin is or their gender, etc., then I think that is something that can then put people who are in positions of privilege in a position to use it for good. And for those who don't have certain kinds of privilege innately for them to be able to recognize how to build themselves up and to ha- and to be powerful despite not having innate privilege and how they can recognize abuses of power as well because abuse of power occurs in our workplaces in our politics in our obviously interpersonal relationships and many of these tactics are the same tactics so if we can't recognize it in one sphere we can't recognize it when it shows up in other spheres. And that's what the whole point of this podcast is about, is to expose abuser tactics and abuses of power in all of its manifestations and to 
and to also create and generate a way for us to use power productively and for good. Because power in and of itself isn't bad. It's how we use power. And I disagree that power corrupts innately. I I think that you can be powerful and still use it for positive things like promoting equality and justice and sustainability. I think a lot of times, though, I think power does expose the what a person wants to do because maybe a person whatever they whatever their leaning is they don't have the power to do certain things but once they do have that power then it becomes expressed right so a lot of times culture makes masculinity uh, a, a positive trait and so when it comes to domination like that's what they want to do because that it exposes who they are but i, I believe one of the things by addressing education would hopefully change the culture and thus using that power, like you said, for good instead of domination. Yeah, and I think also we need to help teach kids why they're seeking power. You know, are they seeking power because of status? Are they seeking power to dominate and control? Or are they seeking power so that they could make positive change? Right. It's 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 something that should be addressed, right? We live in a capitalist society, so that's always going to happen, right? Just power is there's always going to be an imbalance of power well that's a um, great uh, way to close our conversation today michael and until next time thank you for joining and thank you thanks for listening to this episode of engendered the show is sponsored by can do it q a a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice community and learning you can join can do it q a for free at q and a dot k-a-n-d-u-i-t dot com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions.